You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Tilly Robinson. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Later in the program, the Indiana House Committee on Courts and Criminal Code heard public testimony today on the proposed abortion ban bill recently passed in the Indiana State Senate. More in today's feature report. At the Bloomington Historic Preservation Committee meeting on July 28th, Historic Preservation Program Manager Gloria Colombrania shared a petition for solar panels on a house in the Prospect Hill Historic District. The staff recommended the project for approval since the panels would not be visible from the street. Branya read the recommendation from the neighbors and staff. Uh, yes, this... Uh has been in my neighborhood for a couple of years now and it's uh last year a neighbor actually mowed the front yard for the person that lives there i've never had any interaction with the owner he rarely takes the citations off the door Uh, i've never even seen the person a neighbor tells me that he does live in there but i issued a warning on 4 8 22 i issued a 50 dollars fine on 5 10 of 22 a $100 fine on 524 of 22, a $150 fine on 69 of 22, and then on 76 of 22, another $150 fine with the uh, section for the abatement checked on that citation. I've never had any interaction. He's never called in, or or he or she, I really don't know. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's waist high or better. And the HOA has reached out several times. The commission approved the petition unanimously. Next, the commission heard a request to add onto their house at 208 East 16th Street in the Garden Hill Historic District. Owners of Rogers Remodeling, Noah Rogers, said that the house is on a small lot, so there is little room to add on with the 15-foot setbacks. So I had spoken with... um the, the city beginning changes how much what is her name Lisa that we have been speaking with um, Karina what was it Karina Karina correct we have been speaking with her about the variance trying to get a variance because the, the, the lawn is only 50 foot wide and she has to have 15 foot setbacks for the second floor so if we were to do 15-foot setbacks on each side of the lot, you know, she doesn't really have anything at all to build on. So I was really surprised that they said they would deny the um, the variance. Can, but if we were to put an apartment building there, I guarantee you they would have gave us the variance. Petitioner Lisa Freeman spoke asking the commissioner to support her. Yeah, I would appreciate that recommendation, you know, if I, you know, do choose to go that path, it would be nice to have that um, backing, otherwise it'll give me options. I really love the first design, Mm -hmm. Um, but again, 
I just need to kind of weigh everything and timing. Um, but that would be wonderful if I took advantage of HPC backing for that. Commission members approved the add-on with support for the variance unanimously. The next Bloomington Historic Commission meeting will be held on August 11th. At the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting on July 19th, Neighborhood Compliance Officer for Housing and Neighborhood Development Kenneth Lifford asked the board to approve a continuous abatement of a property at 2216 South Laurelwood. Uh, yes, this uh, has been in my neighborhood for a couple of years now, and it's uh, last year a neighbor actually mowed the front yard for the person that lives there. <clears throat> I've never had any interaction with the owner. He rarely takes the citations off the door. Uh, I've never even seen the person. A uh, neighbor tells me that he does live in there. But I issued a warning on 4-8-22. I issued a $50 fine on 5-10 of 22, a $100 fine on 5-24 of 22, a $150 fine on 6-9 of 22, and then on 7-6 of 22, another $150 fine with the uh, section for the abatement checked on that citation. I've never had any interaction. He's never called in or or he or she, I really don't know. So it's, uh, it's waist high or better. And the HOA has reached out several times. The board approved the abatement unanimously. The next Board of Public Works meeting was held on August 2nd. Earlier this week, the state Senate voted 26 to 20 in favor of Senate Bill 1, which would ban nearly all abortions in the state with exceptions for rape, incest, or if the mother's life is in danger. On Tuesday, the Indiana House Committee on Courts and Criminal Code took up the abortion ban bill. The committee heard public testimony where Indiana residents shared their concerns regarding the Senate bill. Cassie Ringelsbaugh, a family law attorney from Hamilton County, said she's afraid of the lasting impacts of this bill. Today I stand before you afraid. I'm the mother of three little girls who five years ago I wasn't sure I'd ever have. I have been through medications, shots, hormones, procedures, IUIs, and eventually IVF, and I have several remaining euploid frozen embryos. A few years ago, we transferred a healthy male embryo, a boy we greatly wanted, and it worked. My pregnancy tests were positive, but our joy was short-lived when a few weeks later, we learned that we were experiencing a miscarriage, a spontaneous abortion is what it's called, medically speaking. Our beloved son had no heartbeat. My body followed my heart and refused to acknowledge our loss, so we waited. For 10 days, I waited for my body to stop believing I was pregnant. For 10 days, I carried around my dead baby. And when my body refused to believe what science already knew, my doctor could have prescribed me a medication, a medication that you guys have the choice to make very difficult for women to find. 
That was March of 2020 during COVID when telehealth was imperative, which again has been taken off of this bill. I already blame myself. I asked myself, what did I do wrong? Did I walk too much? Did I not walk enough? Was my anxiety too high? Now imagine my doctor reporting it, a police officer interrogating me, subpoenaing my text messages and interviewing my family. Imagine a world where miscarriages of very wanted children are investigated. That is the world that you have the choice to create. Will we stop women at the border in Indiana to test them for pregnancy? How many 16-year-olds will know what implantation bleeding is or subchorionic hemorrhages? What about my monochorionic identical twins? The way that this law is written right now, they are a single person because that embryo split after implantation. Will other twin moms have the options for TTTS, life-saving surgeries for multiples because the lives of multiples aren't weighed against each other in this bill. If fetal personhood is created in this law, will my frozen embryos be considered abuse and neglect? Will they be put in foster care in other women's wombs? Will every action of pregnant women resulting in a miscarriage be investigated for child endangerment? If you do this, women will become victims of this process. Women my age, my younger sisters, young women, teens, they will be your victims. They will be childbearing years until our course can fix what you have done. Your proposal gives rights to the government and it deprives those to individuals. What you have written as we sit here today will result in miscarriages being investigated, doctors afraid to teach, treat patients, reproductive endocrinologists, high-risk OBGYNs, MFNs, they will leave our state and women and children will suffer. Your time Representatives, I want to leave you with this. The whole world is watching you right now. Any law that you put into place where a practitioner questions the legality of care and treatment given to a patient is fraught with peril. Choose wisely because your daughters and your granddaughters are watching you. Do not be on the wrong side of history. We will remember you. We won't forget come November. Claire Kaneshiro, an undergraduate student at Princeton University, said the bill limits abortion access for sexual assault survivors. Uh, chairperson, members of the House, thank you. My name is Claire Kaneshiro. I'm 19 years old. I uh, grew up in Indiana, attended high school just north of the city, and I'm now entering my second year of undergrad at Princeton University. Um, and I'm asking you to oppose SB1. Um, IU was uh, almost my top choice for schools, but in one semester, this would have been my first semester freshman year, Indian University had over 24 reported cases of sexual violence. And given that only 10 to 20% of cases are reported in university, um, the actual numbers could be as high as around 200. That victim could be your child, your grandchild, it could have been me. And according to the CDC, one in seven of those victims of rape will eventually become pregnant. And you can do the math. That's lots of college age women. And yet SB1 only allows 10 weeks for college age victims to determine that they are pregnant. 10 weeks could be only one or two missed periods depending on the regularity of them. 10 weeks, as someone suggested earlier, to go to a police officer and make a case. 10 weeks to recount a deeply traumatic experience, understand it, determine you are pregnant, schedule an appointment with limited operating providers of abortion, attend counseling, and wait 18 hours to get that abortion. 10 weeks is not enough. 10 weeks is unreasonable. This effectively eliminates abortion access for the victims that you should be protecting. 
and the majority of Hoosiers agree with me that this is overreach, this is overly restrictive. This will discourage young people like me from studying and working in Indiana. And as a college student, I don't feel safe here knowing that I could become pregnant against my own will and that I will not be able to access the healthcare that could one day protect my life and my livelihood. I think it's important to understand that this isn't just about life as a biological human being. This is also about me as an emotional and a social person who exists and engages. And young women, including me, don't feel safe here, knowing that SB1 will force us to give birth following and reliving the trauma of rape. And this is not what freedom should look like in our state. And this is not what dignity looks like for women in our state. But also to say that a woman should not need to be violated in order to exercise bodily autonomy and to choose abortion. Because SB1 infringes on other rights of freedom that we have given in our constitution, including the religious freedom of young people and young people like me who are either non-religious or belong to a non-Christian religion, a freedom protected in the very first amendment, where is the separation of church and state? Not all of us believe life begins at conception. Some of us believe that life begins when the fetus cannot survive outside of the womb. Some of us believe that life begins when the infant is halfway out the birth canal. By passing SB1, you would be forcing a religion of the majority upon the rest of us. And why is the religion of legislators, many of whom I do not vote for and I I cannot vote for because I don't live in their districts. Why are you entering in my doctor's office? This is not freedom. This is not freedom of religion. This is not freedom of myself. Um, you cannot legislate your laws by your God who I do not believe in. And this is the hardest decision of your life. And it isn't yours to make. SB1 replaces freedom with force. And I encourage you to oppose it. Thank you. Reverend Gray Lacine, Dean of the Christ Church Cathedral, urged state lawmakers not to take any more action on the Senate bill. Madam Chair, members of the committee, I am the Reverend Gray Lacine, and I serve as the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral, located just two blocks from this state house on Monument Circle. We are part of a wider network of Episcopal churches and Christian communities from across the great state of Indiana, from South Bend to Jeffersonville, Evansville to Gary. As an ordained Christian clergy person and as a person of deep Christian faith, I come to you today asking that this committee and that the House take no further action on Senate Bill 1. This legislation will harm women, girls, and pregnant people in my congregation. This legislation will endanger the lives of women and pregnant people who live in our church's downtown Indianapolis neighborhood. This legislation will threaten the health and safety of pregnant people across the Hoosier State. As a pastor and as a priest for more than 21 years, I have on several occasions counseled and supported pregnant people who for a variety of very legitimate and moral reasons have needed to end their pregnancies. I can say that in each case, the people I have counseled and supported have made those decisions prayerfully, reverently, and after much soul searching and conversation with their families, their medical providers, and with me, their pastor. Our conversations weighed many moral goods and were made in consultation with friends, family, and with my parishioners' medical advisors. Today, I'm asking you, dear representatives, to give pregnant people in the Hoosier State the dignity and respect 
to make these difficult decisions with their doctors, with their families, and with their communities of faith. You may be surprised to hear that a Christian clergy person is asking you to take no further action on this bill, but I want you to know that there are many faithful Christians and people of many different faiths in the Hoosier State who believe that reproductive health care and reproductive health procedures should be treated as all other medical procedures. The Episcopal Church and Christians and people of many other faiths alongside us believe that equitable access to health care, including reproductive health care, is an integral part of a pregnant person's struggle to assert their dignity and worth as a human being. If you pass this harmful legislation, you will be endangering the lives of young teenagers and my church's youth group who may self-harm if they are not able to have an open and honest conversation with their doctors. You may be endangering the lives of pregnant people in our downtown neighborhood experiencing homelessness who have no ability to travel outside of state to obtain adequate health care. You may be endangering the lives of pregnant people sitting in my pews who face high-risk pregnancies where local doctors may refuse to care for them for fear of being prosecuted. As a pastor and a priest, I will continue to walk the sacred and tender and vulnerable road with the women I serve when difficult reproductive health care decisions need to be made. My colleagues and I will continue to support and counsel them, and if you pass this harmful legislation, we will help them obtain appropriate care out of state. However, what I'm asking of you today is that you leave these difficult medical decisions to pregnant people and their medical providers here in their home state. When they seek our counsel, our faith communities will support and guide and nurture them. But please, I ask you, leave these decisions up to them. This morning, the Indiana House Ways and Means Committee amended the companion bill, Senate Bill 2, to give taxpayers a $225 refund and to provide additional support for adoption services. The $45 million toward the Hoosier Families First Fund is now absent from the bill. In addition, the committee passed Amendment 25, which makes changes to Senate Bill 1, including the removal of some restrictions for victims of rape and incest. Under Indiana Code, the special session will need to conclude by August 14th. However, lawmakers indicated they hope to close the special session by next Monday. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Guards from Louisiana's adult prisons have been called into two state-run youth jails, the Swanson Center for Youth in Monroe and Bridge City Center for Youth outside of New Orleans. Last Thursday, 20 youth detainees at Bridge City took over parts of the building while five youths escaped through a hole cut in a bathroom ceiling, one of many escapes, leading Jefferson Parish Sheriff's deputies and SWAT members to attempt to restore order. Internal memos show that guards are now allowed to carry tasers and pepper spray and employ use of force techniques. The temporary approval of such tactics, which are generally off limits in youth facilities, is a sign of increasingly desperate conditions inside Louisiana's aging and understaffed juvenile jails. 
The decision to allow use of force inside the youth jails alarmed some attorneys and advocates. Aaron Clark Rizzio, executive director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights, stated, These policies are a threat to increase use of force on children in facilities that are supposed to be helping children and rehabilitating children. If there's too much fear and violence within these facilities, they're not going to help that by introducing more fear and more violence. Governor John Bell Edwards, who ordered the Department of Corrections and Louisiana State Police to temporarily send guards to Bridge City and Swanson, said that reinforcements, including state police troopers and probation and parole officers, began securing the two facilities last Friday. Edwards stated, This immediate solution will be in place for as long as necessary as we work to put a long-term staffing plan in place to ensure the safety of the youth who have been entrusted to our care as well as the staff. We are in conversations about the longer-term solution and nothing is left off the table. On the levee in view of Bridge City last week, supporters rallied in solidarity, chanting, Bridge City youth have the right to rebel. State troopers go to hell. Washington, D.C. contains more law enforcement officers per capita than any other major American city. Agencies including the FBI, DHS, and ICE coordinate through a complex network of partnerships, initiatives, and technology to surveil the district. Last year, a transparency collective, the Distributed Denial of Secrets, published 250 gigabytes of department emails and attachments, and this week, a group of immigrant-led civil rights organizations, the ICE Out of DC Coalition, published a report mapping out many of the region's law enforcement surveillance agencies and technologies. Taken together, the report and the leaked documents reveal the corrupt and invasive eye of DC police. The Joint Operations Command Center, JOCC, is a surveillance network that Washington, D.C. police use to watch everyone, residents, political protesters, and suspected gang members. Officers and analysts keep eyes on news, activist social media accounts, and closed-circuit television feeds, funneling intelligence to plainclothes officers on the ground. Designed as an emergency infrastructure upgrade for the War on Terror, the network was launched on 9-11 and has only grown since then. The documents and report show that NPD's database of supposed gang members is riddled with errors and used to justify aggressive policing of black communities, that a robbery unit likely engaged in jump-out intimidation tactics and targeted schools and youth, and that a powerful tribunal overrides the department's attempts to fire bad cops. Dinesh McCoy, an attorney and the report's co-author, stated, that many of these systems are constantly collecting information about DC residents and can provide precise details on their daily lives in real time. There's a real potential for this kind of surveillance to cause a chilling effect and a climate of fear around the right to protest in the city, especially for black and brown people that are targeted most often by police. Carlos Andino, a fellow at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs explained, they're making tremendous leaps in order to justify the surveillance of black and brown residents. The more they get away from 9-11, the more they need to justify their constant surveillance. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. 
MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Tilly Robinson. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local longer 